I've never seen my dad cry. He didn't cry at the funerals of either of his parents. He didn't cry the time I accidentally punched him in the nose when I was trying to hand him the remote control. He didn't cry when Samwise Gamgee said to Frodo, but I can carry you. In fact, I don't think he even went to that movie because he was annoyed they didn't destroy the ring in the first one. Don't waste the man's time. I have, however, heard of my dad crying once. Over dinner at my parents' house in Alabama a few years ago, my brother told me about how he had accidentally gone missing for several hours earlier that fall. He had gone to our old high school's football game, then met up with some friends for drinks after the fact. Late that night, on his way home, he started having terrible abdominal pains, unlike anything he had ever felt. He wasn't far away from the diagnostic clinic where he worked, and he knew someone was on call, so he went there. They tended to him overnight, did x-rays and ran tests, and in the early morning hours, he fell asleep while receiving some meds. He didn't wake up until 11 a.m. What my brother had forgotten before dozing off was he was supposed to meet my dad at 6 a.m. to drive to the Auburn football game. When my brother was late, unreachable, and not at home, my dad spent five hours calling hospitals, driving around, retracing my brother's steps, and tamping down all of his worst fears. When my brother woke up to a full voicemail box, he called my dad. As soon as my dad heard my brother's voice, he started to cry. I didn't see or hear this happen. My brother just relayed it to me months after the fact. And as he said the words, I heard him crying, I burst into tears. I'm nearly crying again now thinking about it. We need our loved ones to be who we think they are. If they divert from that, it must mean something awful has happened. My brother always has his phone and always picks up. My dad votes Republican and never cries. I live a thousand miles away and always forget to call. Oh, baby. This is Stupid Human Suits. Suits. Yay! This week, our guest is Maris Ellers. Uh, Maris is a photographer, social media and marketing consultant, and a wife and mother who lives in Minnesota. Uh, Maris also knows a lot about what happens when the world conspires to keep you from living in your stupid human suit the way you were meant to. And we're going to talk a lot about that with her. Uh, Maris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I just want to start by getting a little bit of the lay of the land. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up, how many siblings, you know, what your parents were like, that sort of thing? Sure. So I was born in Southern California and I have two, I had two older brothers, uh, one named Mark and one named Kirk. And we lived in California until I was four and then we moved to Montana and that's where I lived all through high school. And then I moved out West to Minnesota and have been here ever since. <laughs> and what were your parents like growing up? Um, I think they were very typical of um, parents in the 1970s and 1980s mm-hmm. on the conservative side of things mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Um, my dad had been raised in the Northeast and was very conservative. And my mother came from Texas. And so she was a Southern Baptist. <laughs> oh, gotcha. And so how they connected or got together um I have no idea, but <laughs> we were a melting pot for sure, for uh-huh. sure. And um, they were very, when I was younger, my mom was very much kind of an advocate for the underdog. And I kind of, I credit that's where I sort of learned that sort of belief to stand up for other people. And even when it wasn't always popular. Mm-hmm. And my father was very 
stoic. He was funny, but very unemotional, very emotionally unavailable in some ways, I guess I would say. Like very distant or just standoffish, like didn't want you to get inside his head or just wasn't accessible. You know what I mean? Was he actively pushing you away? He was very, to me, to me his daughter. Yeah, you know, he was yeah. very fun and very... Um, parenting was different back then, I guess. Maybe I would yeah. say that. And and with them, it was. It was sort of like your basic needs were met and that you were good mm. to go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm from Alabama. I can't remember if I told you that before. Um, so definitely grew up very conservative. Um, super, you know, super loving family. But my dad also had that, that stoicism yeah. where, you know, you knew he loved you and he'd be super playful. But <laughs> in terms of his emotional life, you didn't really get a right. lot of that. But you also have a similar story with, uh, right. you know, your mom teaching you. Yeah. You, you know, my mom is, is very conservative but I definitely got a lot of you know what I think of as my liberal values from her today. She similarly kind of, you know, love the underdog. Um, she, you know, in the eighties did AIDS education in when Alabama. nobody would talk about AIDS and, and, you know, told people to not you know, be afraid of people who had AIDS and told kids how you do and do not get it and stuff like that. But, you know, now she disavows any uh, responsibility for my, my <laughs> liberal tendencies. Um, but I want, I want to ask fine. you, uh, yeah, what's that? It's just a contradiction in yeah. a way. It's, uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, but uh, I also have I have a, an older sister who is much older and uh, also two older brothers. And uh, so I was kind of wondering, um, you know, I grew up idolizing my older brothers and the, my world sort of began and ended with them. They were like my protectors, but also occasional torturers. Uh, what was your relationship uh, with your brothers like growing up? So my oldest brother was eight years older than I am. And so we weren't very close. He was sort of, you know, already on his way and pretty independent by the time I was coming up. My middle brother, Kirk, and I were extremely close, but had a challenging relationship in and of itself. Mm -hmm. He was mm -hmm. very much my nurturer. He, he really, my parents divorced when I was in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And Kirk pretty much raised me after that. And oh. so he was the one who in a really broken family would make sure that I got up in the morning and had a lunch and that I practiced my flute and he would push me a lot, but to make sure that I succeeded at the things that I was, you know, that I was doing and that I was engaged in. He, he, he was very much, um, trying to be a parent when he was 15 years old and struggling with a lot on his own plate. And, and I'm always, I've always been grateful for that, even though I resisted it at times. Um, <laughs> well, how can you not, you know, when you're young, yeah. you just want right? to yeah. what do you right. think you Um, you had a story about a, a pink dress that was really lovely. Would you tell us about that? Sure. So when I was in, I, I don't remember exactly now how old I was, but probably around second grade, there was this event, this charity event, and um, it was like a mother-daughter fashion show. And so I modeled in this with my mother, and <laughs> I wore, one of the outfits I wore was this really pretty, long, pink, fluffy chiffon and lace dress. And I loved that dress. I just thought it was so, I just felt so different in it, right? <laughs> and I wanted that dress. And of course, it wasn't anything that we could afford. And so... I wasn't able to have it. And Kirk, bless his heart, saved his money. And I want to say it was like close to a year later. Ugh. He actually gave me that dress for my birthday. And it was probably throughout most of my childhood, <laughs> probably the most expensive and, you know, elaborate <laughs> gift, no purpose that yeah. I ever received. And yeah. I still have it. I still have oh, it. It hangs up in my great. closet. 
Um, I love that. Uh, well, we obviously we really uh, a lot of this we want to be about Kirk and 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 his story and what your family went through. Can yeah. you um, can you tell us when things started to change for Kirk? Um, when his life kind of went off in a different path than it seemed like it should have. Well, that's kind of a complicated question because I think it had gone off really it was when he was four. And mm-hmm. so I was a baby at that time. So I think it's important for me to say, I never knew him any different gotcha. than who he was to me. Right. Okay. Like I never saw a big change in him because he really always was who he was. Um, what I can say is, and I don't know how much you want me to get involved in just the story itself now, or to say, um, I guess maybe I'd like some clarification. Let's oh, stop yeah. there. Okay. Um, yeah. If you'll so, just like, if you want to tell us the general story of what, you know, happened okay. to him when he was four or five and then, uh, I mean, you don't have to get super detailed, but we can just assume our listeners don't know the story at all. Okay. Um, it might be more impactful if I mm-hmm. start from when I discovered it because oh, okay. I think then that ties it back if that's okay. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. That makes, that makes okay. perfect sense. So it was a Sunday afternoon and it was in like 2010 and I was driving home and I was talking to my oldest brother on the phone and, um, we'd had this, I was telling him about a friend of mine who was going into a really intensive therapy program. And my oldest brother was saying, you know, I think therapy is just a big crock. It's not going to work. It, it won't fix anything. And I was like, how can you say that? And he brought up, he said, well, don't you come through as a child at UCLA? And I was like, well, no, I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't really know anything about it. And it was because I was a baby at the time. Mm -hmm. And so we got into this big, long discussion. And throughout the discussion came out the fact that my oldest brother had been told by Kirk that a book had been written about some therapy that my brother had undergone at UCLA at the age of four. Mm. And it kind of blew my mind because I knew he had gone to UCLA and growing up, all I knew was that he had been enrolled in this therapy program because he liked to play with girls toys. That's all I knew oh. my whole entire life. That's all I knew. And no one ever wanted to talk about it. Oh, wow. Uh, Kirk didn't want to talk about it either. No, he never talked about it. Okay. And so, and keep in mind, I mean, I'm, I kind of have to put this out there that yeah. this was, um, seven years almost after Kirk had committed suicide oh, Okay. that I was having this conversation with my brother. Okay. So I, talked about the doctor's names who were involved in the therapy. And this I remembered because I remembered one of the gentlemen named Dr. Green coming to Montana to interview my brother about things that we weren't allowed to talk about. Mm. So I did remember, I remember him sitting in our living room. So I went home and I quickly started researching Dr. Green. And what I found blew me away. He is this world-renowned sexologist now, and he was living in London at the time. And he was a professor emeritus at a um, college, prestigious school in London. So here it is midnight, and I sent him an email. And I thought, he's never going to remember my brother. But I'm going to send him this email. And I said, you know, I don't know if you remember my brother, but his name was Kirk and, you know, Kirk Murphy. And he was a patient of yours at UCLA. And I just found out today that you wrote a book about him. Mm. And so I'm writing to tell you that he both was gay, he was in the military, and that he committed suicide several years ago. 
So if you can point me to any of this information, I'd greatly appreciate it. And I really thought, you know, he might email me back Mm -hmm. years later Mm -hmm. or months later. And I got up the next morning at six o'clock and there was an email from him and I just about keeled over. And he knew who Kirk was. He remembered him. He said he was probably one of the smartest children he'd ever worked with. And then he made it very clear that he did not treat my brother, but that he was a doctor associated with the study, but he was not Kirk's therapist. And this is where the first bombshell was dropped. He said, the therapist who treated your brother was a young graduate student by the name of George Reekers, who later became one of the most prominent anti-gay crusaders in our country's history. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, here's the book and here are the chapters that are about your brother and good luck to you and goodbye, basically. Oh, wow. So so he was basically just oh, at oh. a distance from all this and, and Reekers was, was just a, a grad student experimenting on your brother, essentially. He was and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there's so much to the story. It just goes so deep. But yeah. um, Dr. Green was actually the doctor who wrote the grant. Mm-hmm. So the re- the research, quote unquote, that was done on my brother and other children was actually a million dollar grant that was funded by the National wow. Institute of Mental Health. Oh, really? But the thing that is so crazy is that they let a 21 year old kid that had just gotten his undergraduate degree loose in the therapy room with these children. That's oh. insane. It is. And we would never do that today. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. at least I would hope not. <laughs> well, but um, who knows and, right now? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So anyway, so I reached out and I wanted to find out more about Dr. Reekers. And so I immediately wrote to two different people that I found online. And one was the reporter who broke the story about him with the male prostitute. And another was a gentleman who wrote about this topic and these doctors quite heavily. And so that created this long conversation and everything, I kid you not, just like bubbled to the surface within 24 hours. Wow. And it was overwhelming and it was you know the therapy the books the papers the lies um it became really obvious quickly that dr reekers wrote about my brother and said that he was able to cure him of um, his sexual orientation and he had never seen my brother after the therapy in use he i mean he just lied about it yeah he said he kept in touch with my brother all throughout his childhood that's just a flat-out lie um and they lied about who my brother was in in the actual papers and things that were released through UCLA. For example, they said as a four-year-old that he was a cross-dresser, that he insisted on wearing wigs, that he wore dresses everywhere. And I was a baby, so I don't remember that, but everyone in my family is like, no, not a chance. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not true. It's just not true. So that's where I really learned how people... Um, in power sometimes change the narratives to meet their own agenda. And I was completely floored by that. Did they go into detail in, in everything you found? Did they go into detail what the quote therapy involved? Yes. Yes. And it ranged from, they would put him in a room with a one-way mirror and they would say, some days they would say, um, you know, here's some girl toys and here's some toys for boys and you can play with whatever you want, but know that we'll be able to see what you've chosen. Or they would say, here are some new toys and you cannot play with any of the toys that are for girls. And if you do, we will know. So basically what they told him was, you know, we're going to spy on you. Mm-hmm. We're going to watch you. And that 
in hindsight, connected a lot of dots for wow. me because I know that they taught him at a very young age that people would see what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. You they have to hide him. yourself. They basically. just shamed him. Yeah, yeah. And they also talked about um, having my mom in the therapy room with him and telling him or telling her that if he were to play with the toys that were for boys, that she was to uh, reward him and give him affection and love him. And if he picked up anything um, that would be considered a toy for a girl, that she was to shun him and reject him. And Dr. Reekers writes about my brother sobbing on the floor because she wouldn't acknowledge him. I'm sorry. I mean, this is just evil. This is just evil. Yeah, it really is. It is. Um, do uh, so. I'm just one. I'm shocked that, that you know this is something that you find out after you've lost your brother. Um, did I? Oh, God, I have so many questions. Did um, <laughs> uh, so your older brother Mark, he had more of a sense. Like he he sort of saw this. Your he remembers your brother before and after this treatment. Yes. Okay. Yes. Exactly. And and um he saw the change almost he 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 associates the change with when we moved to houses uh-huh. because they had lived in a house and then i think shortly after i was born they bought a larger house and the therapy started just a short time after that okay. so in his childhood mind he's always associated you know life before our, that house and life after that house okay um and then, so how? Uh, and he was involved in therapy too. He was involved in the therapy too. He was in oh, the room right. occasionally as part of the don't acknowledge or acknowledge stuff. Or this is the poker chip thing, uh, the the rewards and, and punishments. Mm-hmm. So shortly after, a few months after the therapy started, um, Doctor Reekers wrote that Kirk had figured it out. Right. Mm-hmm. So he knew that when he came to the clinic that he needed to play with just the boy stuff and to do what they wanted him to do. But that when he went home, it didn't really make a difference. Mm -hmm. So they instituted a poker chip program and the poker chip program was, um, where if he chose activities that were masculine or toys, then he would earn a blue chip. And if he chose, like if he would rather play with my toys, Mm -hmm. um, which I was still a baby, Um, or did something that was construed as feminine, like if he wanted to play with the pots and pans versus go outside and play baseball, then he was awarded a red chip. And so they put my brother on the same program as a way to, you know, show them, show my brother that they were both doing it. Uh And the sad thing really is, is that you have to understand that they told the parents, each one of them, they told, and it's documented, that it was their fault that he was feminine. What? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's mom's fault because she's domineering Mm -hmm. and, you know, babies him too much. And it's dad's fault because he's too distant. Right. So they said, basically, at the end of the week, the number of red chips that my brother would have would be the number of wax with a belt he would have to get. fucking kidding? Oh, uh, Jesus Christ! And um, I I saw in the the interview that your your brother Mark w- would try to protect him by s- taking some of his red chips and put putting them on his own pile. Yes, and you know he didn't he didn't understand right. 
He didn't understand why, but he was able to figure that out. And the thing is, is that it wasn't until I read Reeker's papers where he talked about the poker chips that I remembered the chips. I remember those chips. They were in our house for a very long time. And I called my brother and we'd already started, you know, kind of unveiling all of this. And I said, you know, Mark, do you remember something to do with poker chips? And at the time, Mark was a truck driver and I think he was in Louisiana and it was just traumatizing for him to be able to put that into perspective that the chips were really a way to try to change who my brother was and, and the discipline that came from that was, was really from the therapy. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that's occurring to me um, now, like the idea of losing uh, a brother, especially the one that you're closest to is just horrible. That in and of itself um, I'm sure is a nightmare to figure out how to cope with and then move on after. But then to have this completely other narrative um, that you have to do a fact-finding yeah, mission for. to just be dumped on you later in life. I, I mean, mean, you're piecing together your own childhood. How does, do you relive the grief all over again? Is it worse, you know, trying to put this together and, and re-understand what happened to your brother? It's It was far worse. Mm. It was really, it was a lot worse, actually. And um, I think the thing that most people don't really understand unless they really are intimate with the studies and the research and the, and the publications is that there were two doctors involved in this and they both made their careers. It was a platform for their careers, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. And Dr. Green walked away and said, you know, you are who you are. We're going to find that homosexuality is caused by a gene. And Dr. Reekers was over here saying, you can change someone's sexual orientation and you can basically pray and beat it away. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but they both wrote about my brother as their main success story or the, 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 the child who supported their belief. Right. Yeah. And they each used a different name, but it's all tied together that it's the same child. Uh-huh. And when you see how far that went and how long it went for almost 40 years, you realize that public policy, these doctors provided testimony for security clearances, Dr. Reekers provided testimony for things that prevented gay people from having equal rights. Mm -hmm. Dr. Reekers testimony has been used. And so when you realize, or when I realized that not only had my brother known that these things were written about him, but that largely what we believe as a country, if we say you are who you are, you're born this way, it's based off of Dr. Green's initial work. If you believe that you can change someone's sexual orientation, then you believe what Dr. Reekers started and promoted, and it's all off of that platform. Mm -hmm. And you realize that it's all off the back and the trauma of one child. Well, I I, want to... Because you're getting to something I really want to talk about. And if you'll bear with me for a minute, I just want to draw a couple of lines here. So um, Reekers became a founding member of an organization called the Family Research Council. 
Um, and that was yes. the legislative wing of Focus on the Family? Yeah, they eventually split, um, yeah. and the Family Research Council became its own thing. Um, but the Southern Poverty Law Center has called it an anti-gay extremist group. They called it a hate group at one point, but uh, I think they softened it to anti-gay extremist group. Um, on its website, the FRC describes homosexuality as harmful to society and unnatural. And then it goes on to say, sympathy must be extended to those who struggle with unwanted same-sex attractions, and every effort should be made to assist such persons to overcome those attractions, as many already have. Now, I'm assuming that they still consider your brother to be one of those many who overcame homosexuality. Um, but also on its website... The FRC credits the DeVos family, that is as in Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, with helping them to establish a permanent D.C. office. They also host the annual Value Voter Summit, where just last year speakers included, among others, our current president, Donald Trump, his VP, Mike Pence, his of chief course. of staff, Rince Priebus, his cybersecurity advisor, Rudy Giuliani, and because why not, Kirk fucking Cameron. Why not? Um, so my point in outlining all that, is that for the first time in a long time, the people who think that you can and should cure homosexuality seem to have their tentacles really deep, deep, deep into the administration that's running our country. Um, and this is an administration that wants to cut after school programs and meals on wheels because protecting Americans is their top priority, just not the gay ones. So, Maris, what do you even say to people who think that's okay? You know, the sad bad thing really is is that when this story broke a few years ago and we had a platform mm -hmm. i felt like we were really able to open people's minds and hearts mm -hmm. and i had so many conversations with people where they would say to me or write to me and say i can't believe that i have you know treated someone i loved poorly because of their orientation i understand it differently now or you know there was there was this opportunity to, to broaden people's horizons. And I feel like now that opportunity isn't present because of this administration and because of, um, you know, this line in the sand that's been drawn and everyone is sort of off in their corner on, uh, on their side. Mm -hmm. And so it's not even mm -hmm. a conversation that I really feel that I can have in the same way that I did a few years ago, because everyone's just willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you see it online everywhere. You can't even talk about issues that have any sort of pressure point to them because it just becomes a you versus them sort of thing. And it's really difficult to keep reaching new people. I feel like the only people that want to listen now are the people that already believe it. Right. Yeah. What yeah. I believe they already know what I know. Right. So it, it's become a very challenging environment in which to push forward. Well, like just the need to listen to people, to hear other people's story. Um, we've talked a lot about with previous guests. Um, and there's just not, we, there's no real listening in politics right now and in public commentary because everybody wants to make sure that they're clearly aligned on whichever side they're on. Yeah, I mean, you were talking to right. Carol at a certain point of, uh, <clears throat> um, that uh, th this election was basically the straw that might have broken the camel's back with you and your mom. I mean, do you guys talk? Have, has that changed? We don't talk right now. And to be honest, I don't know that she really understands why. Um, but when we started our conversation, I said that you know, I really credit my mother for my belief that you stand up for other people. And even though um, 
I've seen things differently than her over the years. I still feel like she's the one who taught me that. Mm -hmm. And now she's in a place where she is just so close minded. Um, She doesn't even remember that part of herself. Mm. Right. And she's so far Mm. to the other side that I, it's just so painful to even try to talk. And there's not, not even a conversation that can be had that doesn't, you know, that politics doesn't permeate it from her perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to just not talk politics, yeah. but she's not. And it's, it's that aggressive, um, we've, it's our turn. So it's our way or the highway and you better like it. Mm-hmm. And I just, just can't do it. When you and your mom were talking, uh, would, would you talk about Kirk? What is, it sounds like what the the quote unquote therapy he had was also traumatic for her um, because they had her they were t- feeding her all this until and she was so deeply involved in it. But uh, what's her perspective on it now? Do you have a sense of that, or does she just not talk about it anymore? We don't talk about it anymore, mm-hmm. and I think I can understand that. You have to you have to put into context the time. Homosexuality was illegal in every state except for one. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she grew up a conservative Southern Baptist. um, That's, you know, she had branched out from that. But when a doctor on TV from one of the most prominent medical schools in the country is telling you, hey, if you have a little boy that would rather play with dolls and dishes, then, you know, do all the manly stuff. um, They sold her a bill of goods. They said, you know, he's going to grow up to be a pedophile and a criminal and he's going to have a horrible, horrible life. And oh, by the way, we can fix him, bring him to us, we can fix him. And so she bought into that because we look back at that now and say, how ignorant do you have to be to believe that? But that's not how it was back then. I mean, having a gay child was really traumatic and it was really, really difficult. And you knew that life would be hard. So she took him there with the intent that he would have a better life. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when it all kind of came back and we had to tell her what had actually happened and um, all of this other stuff, it was horrible for her. She felt incredibly guilty. She felt like she had, you know, thrown him to the wolves, so to speak. And how do you come to terms with that? And so I think the window was open for a while for her to talk about it and acknowledge it. And then I think after, you know, she cooperated with it. And then once it was done, it was just kind of done. Right. right. Yeah. You get to a certain age and you can't, I mean, you just can't be revisiting every part of your life, especially the most painful and traumatic things. There's nothing to be done about it. It's in the past. Uh, What, what, what do, what can we honestly expect from, you know, our parents? Mm. Right. And I think she was like, you know, I think she kind of just went to the place where she was like, I'm just going to remember the good. And I, that's all she has to hold on to. I guess what I would have hoped would have come out of that would have been that she would have said, she always said, I loved him in spite of him being gay, yeah. but I wish that she would have gotten to a place where she would have just been, I just loved him. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, yeah. Oh God, you're, this is reminding me of, um, I had a substitute teacher in high school, um, who was, he was married to our Spanish teacher and he was just this wonderful, lovable, clearly gay man um, who, you know, would uh, over, like this is probably very wrong in retrospect, but he would just overtly flirt with girls. Um, but he, he was a sweetheart and I really loved him. And I found out years later that from my former art teacher that he had committed suicide. And I asked her why. And she said, uh, you know, he was gay his entire life and he never dealt with it. And 
we there was a moment where we both sort of took that in and then she says you know I don't agree with that lifestyle but I hate that for him and I have not forgiven that woman for that sentiment the your good-hearted need to say I don't agree with that lifestyle is the fucking problem conditional humanity is what it is you know I I don't (laughs) uh, right that's that, that's exactly what it is. And I, I think there are a lot of people out there who have relationships like that with one or both parents and just they decide to put up with it because it's easier. But it really I, I think there's once in a while you'll see like something you have just a, a breaking point where it's just it's too toxic. It's it's too much. And that's that's definitely something that there's a little bit of a, especially with a mother, because I have I have a little bit's not anywhere near the same, but I also don't have a relationship with either of my parents for different reasons. But there's definitely a stigma, especially around the mother, where um, like when you wind up saying telling somebody if it just comes out, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't really we don't really talk. They go like what their, their attitude is basically what's wrong with you? Hmm. Um and you can't, you can't share your life story in a conversation and give them your context and then balance it out by giving what you think is their context and, you know, it was just the time. You can't do that. So, I mean, is that something, is that a weird thing that you struggle with or like that you have to deal, not struggle, but just you deal with on a regular basis uh, with friends and other family members? Um, I think in my world, so to speak, everyone knows where the lines are drawn for me and do I have people in my life that we just don't talk about it? Absolutely. Has my opinion of them changed since this election and all of the stuff that's come out with it? Yes. I don't struggle with it because I just make no apologies for what I believe and why I believe it. Yeah. And so it just, it is what it is for me. And I, I can, I can still love people but not want to be close to them because of that conflict. And I'm okay with that. I I feel very similarly. So thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Life is short. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't hate, I just, I'm sad, but I I love them and I hope they're happy, but I can't. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One other thing I was curious about. So uh, you have uh, two children. Is that correct? I do. Yes. A 13 year old and 12 year old. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, So, as a mother yourself now, um, how has what your family went through and what Kirk went through affected, you know, how you see your children and, and watching them uh, begin to understand and discover their own identities? Yeah, and like any advice you would give to parents who might have a child who is who is uh, they think is gay or could be gay or trans or just anything that isn't, quote, normal, you know, for yeah. our society. Yeah. Um, a friend said to me a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me, and that is there are so many things in your child's life that can make them unhappy. And I don't mean little stuff. I mean big stuff, right? So there's so many things that can hurt them and um, ruin their lives or you know, just long-term consequences. And who they love should just not be one of the things that makes them miserable or unhappy. And so I think my children both know that um, I want what's best for them and I'm going to push them and I'm going to, you know, make them do things sometimes that they don't want to do. And I have expectations of them, but who they are is who they are and no one should ever be allowed to force them to change. And that's just it. That's just it. That's the end of the line for me. So for a parent who is 
maybe thinking that they have a gay child or they, you know, don't understand from a sexual orientation or identity perspective where their kid is coming from. Unconditional love is unconditional love. And as a parent, that's the only thing you have to offer your child. And the rest of it will figure itself out one way or the other. But the regret and grief that you will have if you do not accept your child as they are will come back later and it will probably destroy you as it has my mother. Thank you. Um, this is a, thank you so much for uh, being here. I, ha- I have one more thing I want to ask you about, um, but uh, a couple of quick things I want to say. Um, if our listeners want to learn more about Kirk's story, there is a website called boxturtlebulletin.com um, that has just yeah, an amazing, everything. exhaustive, uh, and well-organized investigation of the entire story. Yeah, go uh, see how bonkers it's. It's just it's bananas. Mm-hmm. There's no other. There's no other take you can have. If your take isn't this is crazy that they are trying to unmake a human being, you're you're wrong. <laughs> That's all there is. This isn't a. Two, there's not two sides to this. Yeah. This is wrong. And right, uh, right. right. Also, if you uh, are struggling with uh, depression, thoughts of suicide, um, any of the the, uh, the things we've been talking about, uh, there is help for you. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Or go to and, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable talking at suicidepreventionlifeline.org, they have an online chat option. Um, there's any number of ways to reach out to people, uh, and it's anonymous. Um, it's safe. So please do that. Um, where I want to close is, uh, one of the things I found on box turtle bulletin was your eulogy for Kirk Maris. And in it, you, you talked about puzzling over what you would do if you had to do it all over again, whether you would do everything differently or do nothing differently at all. And in the end you say, do everything in your life differently so that when you look back, you won't have to change a thing. And then you say, we have a responsibility to Kirk to enjoy life like we never have before because he is no longer here to enjoy his. Um, have you been able to take your own advice? Yes, I think I have. I really have. Um, in a lot of different ways, both professionally and with my family and with my life in general. But really, when we came forward with Kirk's story, uh, we were really afraid to do it. We were afraid for a lot of reasons. Um, but we wanted to start a conversation. And the conversation that we wanted to start was we wanted to bring conversion therapy into mainstream because so many people had never even heard of it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, even the conversations that happen around it that aren't positive are, are positive because five, seven years ago, 10 years ago, we weren't even allowed to have the conversation and no one cared and no one knew and no one understood. So everything that I see that's happening now, um, the fact that reparative therapy or conversion therapy is being outlawed state by state as we go, there is joy in that for me because that means that Kirk's voice was heard and Kirk's story has built a platform that other people have then run with. And for me, the risk for that, there was a lot of risk in doing that and it's all been worth it. And so I feel like now I I have done my part as much as I can to correct, to do everything differently as much as I can, you know, yeah. after the fact. And so I really do try to keep that in mind and I really try not to have regrets. And, 
you know, sometimes it's inevitable, but you have to live with your own conscience and your own heart. And I try to do that. Um, uh, I, yeah, just, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Maris. I mean, just sharing all of this, I, I know it's a, it's a lot to ask. So we're very, very grateful. Um, yeah. And I, I, I hope more and more people, especially now hear Kirk's story again, if they didn't hear it before. Um, because uh, we need to know his story. Yeah, just why, it, like now more, why can't CNN have uh, like a reboot? Just what, the, like now more than ever, they should be airing old relevant right. stories that <laughs> yeah. are relevant again and just like p- putting them into modern, con- yeah. modern, yeah, slightly updated context. Um, yeah. But, I wish they would actually, because the story is so relevant. Yeah, I mean, if, if anybody's listening to this and you want to email CNN and you know, please ask them to bring the story up again, reboot it, with like do an update. Let's find out where these lunatics are, what other lives they're ruining. Yeah, uh, Maris, thank you. Uh, all of our love to you and your family and your brother. Um, and you are a wonderful, lovely person. You can follow Maris Ellers on Twitter at. Mepin Min, let's spell it out. M E P I N M I N. Meepin Min. Meepin Min. Follow her on Twitter. Um, she is lovely and wonderful and an inspiration Source to of both light. of us. Thank you so much, Maris. Thank you. Okay, this has been Stupid Human Suits. And now we leave you with our secular prayer. Our fellow humans who art here and now, hallowed be thy consciousness. Thy kingdom floats. In a universe so vast, it's like totally bananas, man. Therefore, be kind to each other. And don't eat so much bread. Ask forgiveness of your trespasses. And forgive those who trespass against you. Because all of us can be really fucking annoying. For thou art the mind in thine stupid human suit. The only one of its kind. We are thus also. And that must simply be enough. Amen. Amen. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.